The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Vic Reclitus, a reporter at Market Watch, and I'm really really pleased to have with me today today, uh, Kim Wallace from 22V Research. Kim uh, worked in the Treasury Department during the Obama administration, and he's now 22V's Head of Washington Policy Research and Senior Managing Director. Kim, thank you very much for being with us today. Vic, glad to be here. Great. Well, uh, let's jump right into it uh, in terms of questions on the banking crisis. Um, so, I mean, the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank um, have really shaken up markets and Washington this month. Um, uh, there are predictions that Congress won't end up actually doing anything, um, but there's also talk about unlimited deposit insurance, um, scrapping the 2018 rollback of uh, some Dodd-Frank rules. I'm wondering, um, what do you think is most li- the most likely thing or, or things that Congress will end up delivering in response to the banking crisis? Well, oversight is probably the most uh, that Congress will deliver in the nearest of terms. As as you suggest, the outlook for legislation, um, I have a very low outlook uh, probability for that, only because there are a lot of ideas, um, some of them sincere, some of them less so. That's always the case. Uh, And it's very difficult. And the chairs of the House Financial Services and the banking committees understand this as well as anyone. It's very difficult to control a legislative process once it starts. We saw that, uh, well, let's look at Dodd-Frank. Treasury sent Congress an 868-page bill. It came back closer to 2,500 pages. There are very few people who say each of those 2,500 pages contained uh, legislative perfection. And so it's difficult to control the process once it starts. My guess is, along with that oversight function, there'll be intense uh, review of what the examiners and supervisors of these banks knew and when they knew it, and what did they do about it. Uh, Clearly, we have reports uh, from all over media that uh, examiners had concerns about the balance sheets at both of the banks, all of the banks that have been in the news, including First Republic, um, last fall. Um, That seems like a long lag time for nothing to have happened. So it's a very complicated issue, but to decomplicate it, I think uh, Secretary Yellen did a good job yesterday in her speech at the American Bankers Association. She started by saying a diversified banking system is a great advantage to the U.S. We need large, medium, and small banks. You start from there, and then you protect financial stability. You guard against uh, dumb decisions being made freely without there being oversight, and uh, apply the rule book as it exists today. On the systemic risk piece, whether they change those uh, change the law, the 2018 law, to allow more uh, reapplication of systemic risk leverage control ratio, net stable funding ratio that are applied to larger banks. Uh, again, I, I don't believe that's going to happen, but certainly uh, the examiners, supervisors 
can pay a lot more attention, ask harder, deeper questions about that when they do their routine examinations. Okay. Um, well, you're getting at this a little bit, but I, I wanted to ask, I mean, as I mentioned, you, you were once at the Treasury Department. I mean, what are you expecting to see from the Treasury or other parts of the Biden administration as they continue to respond uh, to the banking crisis? Um, and also, I mean, what about from other Washington institutions like the Federal Reserve? I think we'll see what they have uh, already started. First, to make sure that uh, psychology, confidence has been restored, uh, communicate and demonstrate that uh, they have a handle on the problem that uh, both in terms of U.S. regional banks and uh, Credit Suisse, these appear to be isolated, contained and containable events. That's not a prediction. We certainly don't know that, but it appears that that's the case now. In the case of U.S. regional banks, uh, Vice Chair of Supervision Michael Barr at the Fed has promised Congress a report by May 1. Uh, John Tester, uh, Senator of Montana, has said he'd like an independent review. He's gained a lot of uh, support for that. So th the scrutiny of the banks, their overseers, uh, will be intense for the coming six months. That work is likely to result in uh, more than a few suggestions of what can be done differently to uh, have a sustainable banking system that provides uh, inputs into economic growth over the long term, which is part of the uh, administration and Congress's objectives. Okay. Um, so we had some uh, audience members submit some questions before we, we started this uh, chat. Um, Jill had several, um, and, and one of them is, um, uh, will the Fed be requiring banks to hold larger percentages of cash reserves? Um, is that a, I guess she's kind of asking for your forecast there. Oh, and, and if I could add, I mean, uh, if, if you're in the audience and you have a question and you'd like to submit it, please, please go ahead and do that. And we'll try to get to as many as possible. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, for starting out, it's Jill and she's asking, do you think the Fed will... Fed will be requiring banks to hold larger percentages of cash reserves. That's certainly a tool they have at their disposal, Jill. But, you know, I, I think the Fed and other regulators are going to be very keen to understand where the locus of the problem was. It's not as though this is a broad brush that you'll paint all banks with when it comes to remediation, particularly remedial policy. They'll find out where the uh, vulnerabilities lie and uh, act accordingly. I doubt very seriously that whatever comes out of this episode, uh, and this statement is true of all the previous bank financial institution stress periods, 07, 08, uh, 84 through 87, uh, not everything that is recommended or uh, applied will be uh, imposed on everyone at the same time. They'll find out where the problems were, attempt to fix those. And of course, once they've finished that process, they'll communicate broadly uh, to financial institutions that uh, the mistakes of uh, 2023, March 2023, are not to be repeated, and that will be done in official guidance. Okay. Um, uh, thanks for answering her question. Uh, there's also one from Molly. Um, she says, what do the government's actions so far mean for smaller community banks? Good question, Molly. Uh, smaller community banks, um, have uh, advocates uh, throughout Washington. Obviously, they're the ones who are in each congressional district. Uh, they have some of the more effective lobbyists in Washington, D.C. And to the degree that uh, the smaller banks are not perceived to have been part of this problem, uh, 
while they certainly will feel um, some anxiety from anxiety from examiners and supervisors over the next say year until this bleeds out of the system this latest risk flare bleeds out of the system uh, the smaller community banks concerns are that uh, their balance sheets aren't hit by the remedial policies that regulators and other policymakers might come up with over the next six months my guess is that they have uh, very little to worry about uh, community banks are uh, have uh, proponents as i said House and Senate and in the White House. Um, okay, great. Thank you. And so the, another one is from Ed. Um, he's wondering if you think, um, are, are there more banks in trouble, but in stealth mode? You know, another good question, and particularly the stealth mode phrase, it is highly unlikely that uh, some of the challenges, uh, vulnerabilities exhibited by uh, Silvergate, by Silicon Valley Bank, are isolated to those two banks or a handful of banks. More than likely, these vulnerabilities spread uh, throughout banks, large, medium, and small. The question is how well the banks are managed, individual banks are managed uh, to see through these challenges. One concern, of course, is interest rate risk. Well, that's a big one. Uh, you know, uh, rates have moved, uh, federal fund rate has moved 450 basis points in less than five quarters after the better part of uh, 14 years of relatively low cost money, except for that period in uh, 18, uh, beginning of 19, when rates were moving up. Other than that, everyone became accustomed to almost zero cost money. So there was bound to be an adjustment, not just among the banks, but in all sectors of the economy. And so we're going through a little piece of this now. It's one of the reasons it's very likely that while the bank risk flare that we're talking about, everyone's focused on still, isn't a compelling factor in the Open Market Committee's decisions uh, yesterday and what they'll announce today, it's certainly a factor, certainly consideration. Uh, the 22V call is still for a quarter point uh, increase this afternoon announced, and uh, uh, we'll be interested in the forward guidance provided by Chair Powell in terms of what comes next. But uh, no, uh, you know, the, the bank balance sheet, the bank business model is shared broadly. One would have to believe that the vulnerabilities manifested on some of their balance sheets exist, even if in stealth mode in other banks as well. Uh, great, thanks. Well, um, I, I had some Fed questions for you, so let me jump to those. Um, but before I say that, I mean, again, uh, audience members, if you have questions, please submit them. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Um, so. In terms of my question for you with the Fed, um, I'm wondering what type of trouble do you see for the Fed, whether it's from the Biden administration or outspoken members of Congress? I mean, basically, I mean, how significant is the pressure from progressive Democrats, conservative Republicans? Um, do you think it's possible that Jerome Powell might not um, make it through his current term as chair? Uh, there's a lot packed in there. I'll try to unpack some of it. Uh, I'll start backwards. Um, uh, Chair Powell has another five years or so on his term. He was recently uh, renominated and confirmed. Uh, it is not that chairs serve at the pleasure of a president, but certainly uh, the input of a president in terms of confidence in a Federal Reserve chair matters a lot. And those private conversations often motivate actions. I don't have a prediction for you there. I have no idea uh, what President uh, Biden thinks about uh, Jerome Powell's job. 
And I'm not, I don't have any idea what Jerome Powell thinks about keeping his job. Those are decisions they haven't announced. But certainly the scrutiny on the Federal Reserve Board and its district banks, particularly the San Francisco Bank, is at the highest level and it's been since, well, probably Dodd-Frank and likely will remain there until the Fed comes through with its report. Congress is satisfied that it knows what happened and that uh, whatever remedial policies are put in place are sufficient uh, to preclude these series of mistakes from happening again. Um, I would say in the 110 years of the Federal Reserve, there's been growing pressure from Congress, uh, from populists on the left and the right, uh, to open up the charter, look at the various responsibilities the Federal Reserve Board has been charged with over time. It gained a lot of power in the 1999 deregulation bill that passed the Graham-Leach-Bliley bill. Um, and there will be legitimate questions going forward. Is it too much? Can you handle a dual mandate, financial stability, and macroprudential oversight, along with the various other surprises that comes the Fed's way? on a regular basis. Uh, it's a very accomplished group of policymakers, uh, but it, no one's perfect and that those imperfections obviously show themselves from time to time. Uh, absent legislation, which again, remember my call is low probability for legislation this year. Absent legislation, it's very difficult to imagine that the heat the Fed may be feeling now actually gains traction and is a follow-on to making uh, statutory changes. Obviously, you need law to do that. But uh, the process of scrutiny can certainly affect people's behavior and internal systems. And my expectation is we'll see a lot of that. Okay. Um, no, I wanted to also ask a little bit about the debt limit standoff. Um, I mean, it's, it's a Fed day and the banking crisis is front and center, but um, you know that's been a big issue this year and it'll remain a big issue. Um, I mean, so the background, as you know, is Republicans have been demanding spending cuts in exchange for lifting the limit on federal borrowing, um, while President Biden and his fellow Democrats um, have said the, limit should, said the limit should be raised without conditions. Could you walk us through um, what you think is the most likely scenario right now for how this uh, standoff gets resolved? Uh, Vic, I'm happy to, uh, with that caveat that uh, these are my personal views, not necessarily attached to 22V research. Um, I see very, very low odds of default, worst case outcomes. Uh, I do see very high odds that as happens every year, um, government will negotiate top lines of spending revenue and therefore the resulting annual fiscal balance for FY24. That process has extra scrutiny to it, uh, certainly pressure, pressure. Uh, because of debt limit. This is something Washington goes through now um, every year, every other year, depending on how much appetite they have for it. That is both a reflection of fiscal policy and fiscal political preferences of members of both parties, but it has obviously a lot to do with the growth of debt in the U.S. over the last 20 years in particular. Uh, my, my outlook is boring. Uh, relatively neutral. My guess is that uh, sometime beginning Memorial Day, the parties will begin to circle around each other and eventually negotiations will be engaged on fiscal year 24. Once that's accomplished, adding an accommodation of debt ceiling, whether it's a short-term accommodation, which I believe is likely that sometime this summer, 
uh, House Republicans will be more interested in lining up the beginning of the fiscal year, October 1, with uh, a need to adjust the debt ceiling again. So you can do that by date exactly, or you can raise it by number. Um, and then sometime in the fourth quarter, they are very likely to agree on a longer term accommodation. From a political standpoint, I would observe that, uh, you know, watching this over the last 30 years, um, there is, no, I can't recall an incumbent who lost or a challenger who won an election on debt limit politics. It just, it doesn't happen. And so uh, to the degree that uh, this is more of a, uh, a laborious task for policymakers, that's the outcome. And if, if my prediction of staying away from worst case outcomes, because it is in everyone's, almost everyone's interest to avoid that, those types of incentives usually lead you to a deal. The question will remain and it will vex markets and anyone else who pays attention between now and late summer or fourth quarter, um, it will vex you in terms of the process and how they get there but very much more than likely, they'll get there. It'll be loud, messy, um, probably displeasing for most stakeholders and participants, but they'll get there. Do you think, um, I guess on, on the Democratic side, I mean, the, the position has been, we don't want to negotiate, we don't want to agree to conditions. And so Republicans might be able to kind of declare victory and say, oh, we were able to get a negotiation on 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 spending. Um, uh, is that going to be tough for Democrats to sort of have to step down and agree that they negotiated, uh, agree to negotiate? Well, you know, the answer to that question is one's interpretation of semantics. I doubt very seriously that you'll ever be able to say that the president and Democrats negotiated debt ceiling, uh, any changes to policy that related directly to debt ceiling in order to have that accommodated. Uh, I do believe that, uh, as I've said, uh, all parties, Democrats and Republicans, will negotiate fiscal policy for uh, FY24. That, that's inescapable. It happens every year. Uh, the semantics, uh, again, I go back to what I said earlier. Those types of blows about who capitulated, who, uh, who, who had their will bent, um, that stuff maybe feels good tactically and in the, the throes of... Uh, competition, if you will, it rarely matters to the larger narrative of is Washington in a posture to help growth or hurt growth? Is Washington focused on reducing the inputs, the front end of the problem, which is uh, both spending, especially mandatory entitlement spending and revenues? Uh, you know, one of the beauties of fiscal policy is it's just math. It's nothing more complicated than math. Uh, are you willing to raise the revenues to fund the program you've decided on and live with the fiscal balance, balance that results? Or are you willing to reduce the size of your program spending to match the revenues you're willing to bring in? It's never anything more than that. Okay. Oh, you know, that um, fits well with the question that we've gotten from the audience. Um, uh, the gentleman's name is Wade. Uh, he's wondering, are you concerned that at a certain point, um, the U.S.'s growing gross debt uh, will threaten the status of the dollar? 
um, as the world's reserve currency. Do I worry about that, Wade? I do not worry about that because I, I believe that uh, the incentives that voters, markets, businesses, most stakeholders in the U.S. provide Washington is to take care of business. Um, you bring up the dollar, the reserve currency status of the U.S. There are so many benefits to the U.S. that broadly uh, for most Americans that come from having the reserve currency, that come from having an open and generally well understood rule book in financial intermediation, that come from the ability, for example, of the Federal Reserve and Treasury, along with banking regulators, when they spot uh, a vulnerability in the system that could threaten financial stability and has already begun to take hold in psychology to address it and quickly put it out. For example, a week ago today, the concerns about U.S. regional banks were ramping at a pace that you couldn't keep track of. We are a week later, and the last time I looked, which was this morning, both the uh, KBW index, BKX on Bloomberg, and uh, the spider, KRE, had recovered nicely in the last two and a half, three trading days. Uh, that is not to say we are through the concerns about U.S. regional uh, banks in the U.S. That's not the point. The point is that the policy response function worked as it's supposed to. You don't have that available in all countries. Not all countries have a dual intermediation process on the capital market side and the financial market side. There are a lot of advantage advantages to the U.S. for paying its bills and running an economy that's generally transparent and welcoming to capital. Um, my guess is that this Congress is not going to jeopardize that, nor is this president. Okay, um, let's see. Another uh, question is um, uh, from Greg, and he's wondering, um, are brokerages, brokerages like Fidelity affected by all of this? Um, you know, I think that he probably speaks for a lot of viewers who are uh, active traders. Um, is there any effect for Fidelity and other brokerages is what, what the question is from uh, Greg. Well, Greg, the, the first line uh, answer to that, uh, you could uh, answer for all of us. Certainly, you and other investors notice what's happened in the last week. It affected your psychology at some level. It affected the psychology of depositors, both insured and uninsured, investors, uh, certainly market makers at large financial institutions, liquidity in the system, and overall confidence. There's no doubt the past week has uh, uh, represented a dent and a potential risk to all of that. So yes, there are consequences. Um, it is uh, it's sometimes constructive to be reminded both about the benefits that I was talking earlier that the US economy enjoys broadly, relative and in absolute uh, terms in the world, but also to recall that uh, Risk-taking really does mean risk and taking, that uh, sometimes you can be exposed when you thought you were covered. And um, when it comes to the system overall, moral hazard is still there in, in terms of the equity holders, the bond holders here and around the world who've been wiped out of positions. I hope it didn't happen to you. But at the same time, the ability of policymakers to respond and worry about the blame later 
that's not a system replicated broadly throughout the world. Uh, great. Thank you. Now, another question is from Fred, and I think he's basically looking for your view um, on the aid that went to Silicon Valley Bank. Um, basically, this idea of um, all depositors uh, got a backstop, not just at that limit. Um, he wants to know, um, do you think that is that what uh, should have been done? Should have there should there have been that backstop for all depositors? And um, and then could you talk about how are the um, costs going to be distributed among all depositors now? Key question. Uh, obviously, um, it is better to have backstopped uh, the troubled banks in all circumstances than not to have. You had to contain what was a growing uh, risk flare that was a flash fire a week ago that could have grown into something much larger. So that's the first part of it is that, again, the policy response function has to work from a top-down level. That's all that the tools they have. Those tools are often imprecise, but they are certainly effective when it comes to capital and financial markets, both because of the support the policy provided, but also because of the change in psychology. Um, you know, part of the answer is, uh, what's the alternative? Uh, it would not have benefited many people if uninsured depositors at the troubled banks had not been backstopped. And let, let's differentiate. Last week on, on Sunday, the Federal Reserve and Treasury did not agree to backstop all uninsured deposits. They agreed to backstop all deposits at banks that were going to access the facility, the, the bank term funding facility that was established. If you are in trouble, come in for up to a year and we will, the policymaker said, we will make sure that those troubles don't certainly put you out of business, harm local economies and harm households unduly leads to the broader question, I'm sure you're thinking about this, is will there be changes to the thresholds of federal deposit insurance? Maybe, but that requires law outside of emergencies. And again, leaning on the words of Secretary Yellen, it does not appear that the administration feels that they need to do more yet than they have done. That may be all they need to do in terms of uh, backstopping the system. If that's the case, the question of deposit insurance and the thresholds comes back to Congress. If lawmakers choose to change it, uh, you'll have a proposal. It'll go through the system and the president will decide if he's in favor of it. Uh, there are many ways to skin this cat. You could tier deposit insurance. You could escalate the fees uh, that are paid into the deposit insurance fund at the FDIC. Uh, for example, if uh, uh, your deposit is a million to a billion, um, some would ask, why are you paying the same uh, premium into the deposit insurance fund of the institution that holds your money as people whose uh, deposits are 250 or under, $250,000 or under? Legitimate policy question. I don't think it's going to be answered this year, but if, if legislation gets going and I'm wrong, that they produce legislation to address bank stress in 2023, it's hard to imagine that deposit insurance won't be part of the conversation. Uh, cool. Now, here's another question um, uh, from George, um, and it's basically, uh, you know, given the UBS uh, deal to take over Credit Suisse, do you think that it, we are seeing a global banking crisis rather than just a U.S. banking crisis? 
Well, the short answer is you never know. You, you only know that when it unfolds. From what we know, it does not appear. And again, if you take the Credit Suisse example, uh, questions about the management of, management of that bank and risks on the balance sheet have abounded for decades, not years, for decades. And so uh, when you see the unwinding of that institution, there are things on the balance sheet that no one wants to touch. That's probably true of more than a few banks in the US and around the world. The, the real policy challenge is, are there events that lead to that, uh, that position, uh, that posture of those banks becoming a problem to the economy and to households? Do you have a systemic problem developed? So far, we haven't seen that. Uh, if it does, I fully believe that, uh, as you saw on, um, I believe it was Monday, it might have been Tuesday, when, let's call it the G7 central banks, for lack of a better term, came together and agreed on a dollar swap facility. It's similar to the dollar swap facility that was created three years ago. The difference here is they moved the maturity from a day, 24 hour, to seven days to give the market, in part to give the market more time to assess positions and uh, find out if they really needed to access the facility. Thus far, the steps taken by central banks, and particularly in the U.S. with regard to the uh, risk flare, have been prudent. In terms of uh, Swiss National Bank and the ECB, they seem to have been on the case early. Uh, the decision to uh, sell uh, Credit Suisse to UBS for $3 billion is one that's still being digested over there. Um, my guess is you will see, getting back to the earlier question, banks in the U.S., uh, buyers and sellers are going to negotiate with example, for example, the FDIC in the selling and buying of assets at troubled banks. Um, there'll be a lot of haggling uh, with the government attempting to get the best price for taxpayers while making sure that financial stability is insured and buyers looking to get the best price. That's not different from any other market. Uh, we've seen the auctions, for example, at Silicon Valley bank, Bank's assets stretched out uh, now longer than five days, in part because uh, the buyers and the sellers weren't close on some of those assets. Over time, that's likely to happen as more buyers take a look at the assets and come up with offer sheets that present their best offer. So um, uh, there's not anything that's gone on in the last week that is troubling uh, other than the risk flare occurred. We have to find out to make sure that there's not something systemic underneath and then rely on remedial policy to make sure that those things don't come, at least this series of mistakes, don't come back to bite us again, at least not in the near term. Okay, great. Um, well, we're coming up on time. We'll try to go a little bit over and squeeze in a, a couple questions because we are getting a lot. Um, there's one from Sabrina, um, and she's a reporter uh, for a Swiss newspaper. Um, she's wondering, I think this kind of uh, touches on your experience at the Treasury Department. Uh, she's saying um, it's well known that Yellen was in contact with the Swiss finance minister ahead of the UBS uh, Credit Suisse deal. Um, and she says there's some voices say there was even contact at the presidential level. Um, she's basically asking, um, I mean, how would you describe what did U.S. authorities and U.S. regulators probably say to their Swiss counterparts um, uh, in recent days as this was all going on? Uh, uh, what's your sense from your experience on um, 
what the interactions are like uh, between the two countries in that type of situation? Well, I'll start with a, a very standard caveat. Um, unless you're in the room on the phones or on the Zoom calls, you have no idea. But in terms of the process, it's very healthy that uh, chief executives of countries, policymakers, particularly finance ministers and central bankers, get together on a regular basis to discuss issues. Uh, when the validity of international groups such as the Financial Stability Board, um, the International Association of Securities Commissioners, uh, the G20, questions are often asked about these meetings in far-flung places or in Washington, D.C. Um, the, the utility of those meetings is open communication. The ability to know someone else on the other side of the phone when you have no idea when challenges might pop up and the confidence that you can communicate plainly as you seek to uh, resolve problems. My guess is that uh, Secretary Yellen and not just the Swiss finance ministers, but many finance ministers were in regular communication over the past two weeks, not just the past week. Uh, my guess is that uh, the people who prepare chief executives, including our president, for these types of uh, considerations and conversations have been working nonstop to make sure that uh, the relevant points were on the on the piece of paper handed that individual and that uh, uh, the chief executives were able to speak freely without uh, time constraints, all focused on one thing, containing systemic risk. It's a good thing we have this system, in my view. Um, okay, here's uh, one from Neil as, as we wind down. Um, do you think uh, historical cost basis accounting should be renewed? Uh, Mark-to-market reporting seems to make uh, U.S. Treasury bonds and government-backed securities appear less safe in this increasing rate environment? It's a good question, and that'll be part of the conversation as, as the examination of what happened goes through. Uh, the, different, the, the difference in some banks between, for example, uh, assets that were available for sale and assets that were marked held to market, uh, the question will be, were these uh, standard procedures abused to allow weaker or troubled, otherwise troubled banks to avoid um, reckoning. Um, my sense, and particularly when it comes to interest rate risk, is there'll be a lot of focus on why some banks had a high proportion of assets labeled available for sale, sale and those were marked to market on a daily basis. And other banks had the inverse, a very high proportion marked HTM held to maturity. Therefore, you don't have to mark them and you only find out, uh, you know, price discovery happens in crisis all the time. You want price discovery to be part of the conversation other than in crisis. My guess is that uh, this will be part of the conversation in the uh, review of what regulators didn't do or, or didn't know going into the crisis. Okay. Uh, let me just ask uh, one question to wrap up. I hope it's kind of a good uh concluding question. And thank you for your patience with uh, me and with our viewers questions. Um, what do you think uh, with the banking crisis? Uh, how do you think it's maybe getting misunderstood or getting oversimplified? Uh, you know, <laughs> that's that's one that uh, even I could opine on for 10 minutes and real experts could go for an hour. The fact is that in the U.S. economy and system of government that uh, Rules 
um, complicate balance sheets. And sometimes that's good, sometimes it's not. Um, sometimes there are operators within banking institutions who have no intention of sticking with the letter, much less the spirit of the rule, and they create vulnerabilities for themselves and anyone else who associate with them. That's inescapable. Uh, we need a banking system, as the secretary has said several times. Um, you wouldn't want to throw out the highly functional, uh, successful banks taking risks that some others might not want or some others might think they shouldn't do, but who don't bring uh, systemic risk to the system. You wouldn't want them constrained by more and more rules meant to stamp out bad actors. There's, there are ways to get after bad actors, both in terms of compensation, for example, uh, three to five year restricted stock units as opposed to pegging annual compensation to um, uh, stock price. That's something that uh, former president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, uh, Bill Dudley wrote about today. Others have written about it beforehand. Uh, there are a lot of ways uh, to focus on doing the best you can to constrain bad actors without unduly constraining people who are working their best to both make a buck, take risk, and run safe institutions. That's the trick of regulation okay. and supervision. Well, uh, that's all that we have time for today. We've gone over a little bit. Uh, thank you, uh, Kim, very much for being with us. Um, thank you to our audience for tuning in and asking a lot of good questions. Um, we hope everyone can listen to our next episode tomorrow. We'll have um, Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, um, and healthcare industry reporter, Joss uh, Nathan Kazis will discuss the outlook for healthcare stocks, um, as well as the latest news on COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. Uh, thank you all for listening today, and thanks again to our guest, Kim Wallace. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.